The following message is entitled, Proven Faith, Not Seeing is Believing, Part 3. This message was given during the evening service on March 26, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. First Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, as I, slower than a tortoise, drag us through this first chapter, and we now come to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and the sermon title is Proven Faith, Not Seeing is Believing. Obviously a play on the words of the normal phrase where it is seeing is believing, but for the believer not seeing is believing. This is the part three of that. The first two sermons have been introductions to verse 8. And when you read verses 8 and 9, you have to stop and say, what on earth does this have to do with what we've been looking at? The purpose of this series is obviously dealing with joyful, suffering Christians that were to have joy despite suffering, and that's verse 6. And then verse 7 says, this is proven faith when you have joy in the midst of suffering. And you would think, at the end of verse 7, that as he reaches this climax of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when we're with the Lord, you would think then that we would continue on with a study of heaven in the face of suffering. That's, that's where I would have taken verse 8. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, and here is what awaits us in heaven. For the hardship-suffering Christian. I mean, wouldn't you maybe possibly have written that next? Sure. But verse 8? We could say, Peter, what are you doing? Or better yet, infinite, holy, and knowledgeable Holy Spirit, what are you doing? So the end of verse 7. At the revelation of Jesus Christ, and though you have not seen him, uh, I want to see Jesus. You love him. And though you do not see him now, I want to see him now. You believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. He drags us down from heaven at the end of verse 7 and drives us back into the essence of the Christian life. There are phrases here that just blow off the page. And to be honest, if I was biblically counseling someone in joy, counseling them to have joy in the midst of their suffering, and they're in my office, and this is Peter counseling us now in verses 8 and 9, as I've shared with you, I would never have gone in this direction. I can just imagine somebody sitting in my office completely discouraged by trials, suffering for the faith, and I'm saying, well, the Bible says you need to have joy, and the person could theoretically say back to me, yes, yes, I know that, but you don't understand what I'm going through, and I'd say, no, I don't. Potentially. I know in my areas of life where I'm suffering, but maybe not in yours. And maybe the counselee would say back to me, can't you just give me some hope here? I just, I just need a little encouragement, John, in this counseling session so that I can grasp onto joy while suffering for Christ. So what do you have to say to me? And I'll tell you at the end of the day, this one has never in would not have popped out of my mouth. Well, let's see. You're suffering and you need joy. That's the command of verses 6 and 7, and this proves your faith. Um, 
What lofty thought can I give you, counselee, that will encourage you to keep on keeping on? How about this one? You have never seen Jesus and you never will on this planet. What? I mean, that's kind of negative. You would have not seen him and you never will in this life. But have anyone gone there next in the counseling of a discouraged Christian? No. That's what Peter does. And though you have not seen him in the past at all, ever, you love him. And though you do not see him now in the present, and never will, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It seems that what Peter's doing as a counselor, Holy Spirit, Brilliant, we're not, he is. It's connecting to not seeing Jesus to loving him and having even more joy. This is not how it usually plays out when you try to lead people to Christ, especially in this community where so much charismatic theology is just barreling all around us and supposed professed believers. And they can talk about they saw Jesus in a dream and how encouraging it was. And Muslims by thousands are supposedly coming to Christ across this planet. And they're coming to Christ not from the word of God, but through visions of Jesus and dreams. So under Roman numeral three, you have three blank lines. I'd like you to take a moment right now, looking at verses 8 and 9, without saying it out loud, just for yourself, and you're trying to connect the dots here. Can you try to figure out how, verse 8, where he slams his readers, and by implication us, with the idea that we have not seen him in the past, and we never will in the present, or into the future. Could you write on those three blank lines how that is going to encourage a suffering Christian to have more joy. Don't answer out loud. I want to see, just by your own personal few moments here, if you can figure it out and write it down, what you think it might be, and then I will be giving my answer as we rumble along. How does that relate? The first part of verse 8 to the last part. See if you can try to figure that out. How does not seeing him, loving him, not seeing him now, believing in him, increase great joy with joy inexpressible and full of glory? I mean, at the end of verse 7, he just said you're going to be there at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're going to see him in heaven one day. He's connecting joy to seeing Jesus at the end of verse 7. Now he's saying you're not going to see him now. Hmm. I think this is going to require a little more Sherlock Holmes than Dr. Watson. I think Watson would stare at verses 8 and 9 looking for clues, and he'd just go, <laughs> I think Sherlock Holmes possibly would say, by Jove, I think I've got it. 
So consider verses 8 and 9, a British crime scene of discouragement and suffering. And verses 8 and 9 are the keys in the lock to really exploding your joy. And we just can't figure it out. So we need to start examining the clues and the evidence. So did you write something down on those three blank lines under Roman numeral three? Did you come up with something? I don't want you to answer it out loud. I just want you to see if what you found is what we're going to discover as Sherlock Holmes metaphorically takes us through these verses. How on earth can I increase my joy by being reminded that I'm not seeing Jesus at all in this life? And if you didn't write anything down on those three lines because you don't have a clue, this speaks to an issue that is messed up in all of our minds. We have a difficulty with verse 8 because something is going to expose itself to us in verses 8 and 9. It's going to show that our thinking is really messed up. And we never knew it. And the brilliant counsel of the Holy Spirit through Peter is going to reveal that to us. All right, so let's start our hunt through this crime scene of this room in the upper study like Sherlock Holmes might look into. And let's start with verse 8 and start to analyze the evidence. Textual note number one after letter A. Letter A, let's fill that in first. Christians are to love Christ, sight unseen. That's a duh statement. Duh. And though you have not seen him, you love him. So Christians are to love Christ, sight unseen. So we're standing there with Sherlock Holmes, and his first pipe-holding comment is, well, I can see in this room that we're to love Christ, sight unseen. And we're going to look at Sherlock Holmes and say, what? That's supposed to encourage me? I mean, I want to get to heaven at the end of verse 7 and see him. Thoughts of seeing Jesus one day is what's driving me at the end of verse 7. What are you talking about, Peter? All right, textual note number one. The whole issue in verse 8 is that Christianity is not an it, but a him. Okay, H-I-M. Okay, do we see that there? Yes, though you have not seen him, you love him. Okay, I see that he's turning us towards Jesus. Jesus is the last two words of verse 7. So he's actually focusing us in on Jesus Christ, not at the revelation of Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 7, he's talking about the revelation of Christ when we're in heaven or raptured. For tribulation believers, it would be at a second coming. So the focus at the end of verse 7 is the revelation of Jesus Christ, but the last two words of verse 7 now are who he focuses us in on. Not the revelation, not future heaven, but him, not it. Look how many times him are mentioned. Although you have not seen him, number one, you love him, number two. And though you do not see him, number three, you believe in him, Number four. Okay, so I could say, Sherlock, that what you're telling me is I'm dumb Watson and you're smart. That uh, in this crime scene of suffering, I have to have some way to focus on him. Under textual note number one, this is a classic 
maneuver by the New Testament to point out that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Under textual note number one. He is the center of our religious experience. So, maybe the danger at the end of verse 7 is our hope is just being in that place of heaven, checking out of this world through death or the rapture, and our hope is to be there. And that shouldn't really be our hope of heaven. The greatness of heaven is not that death is done and sin is done. The greatness of heaven is that he's there. And I think we're messed up in this area. We're inclined to want to go to that place where no more of my suffering and trials are. That's not necessarily bad. For the Christian, we'll always be worshiping him in heaven. And now, Peter, the great discoverer of clues, is pointing us back to him now. Maybe Peter is saying, if you don't love him now, why would you want to be with him then? The essence of our maturity and godliness is our relationship with him. Our focus must be on him. He's driving us to focus on him in verse 8. And we're still suffering. That's why we need joy. Okay? So if I'm Watson in the uh, upper room and Sherlock has just given me that point, I'd be stopping and thinking, okay, I, I can see there's something to that. I'm going to be deficient in my battle with suffering and joy if I don't make him the center of my relationship and my Christianity. So really, he's more important than what I'm doing and how I'm serving and where I'm worshiping. He's my everything. Okay. Sherlock, help me some more out. Textual note number two. This is such a simple Christian principle. What is that? The principle is this. Christian joy in the midst of terrible suffering. Christian joy in the midst of terrible suffering has only one explanation. Only one explanation. Textual note number two. This is a simple Christian principle. Christian joy in the midst of terrible suffering. We're not talking about suffering from sin, okay? That doesn't glorify God. Suffering for the name of Christ. Suffering serving him. Christian joy in the midst of terrible suffering has only one explanation. And that is this. Our joy is in a life-changing love relationship with a Savior we have never seen. Christian joy in the midst of terrible suffering and distress has only one explanation. It is a life-changing, miraculous love relationship with a Savior we've never seen. 
See, our salvation is mentioned in verse 9. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy. So we have love mentioned in verse 8. We have um, faith mentioned in verse 8. Believe in him. We have an inexpressible joy that is full of glory on top of it. That's a new concept with joy that wasn't mentioned back in verse 6 where it says mega joy. This joy is so great, it's not just mega, it's inexpressible and full of glory. And now this is connected all to our salvation in verse 9. We would tend to look at verse 8 as a disadvantage. I'm supposed to follow Jesus and never see him. And if you've longed in your heart at times in the midst of your suffering, and you said to Jesus, I simply wish I could sit you down in my room, visually see you and talk to you, we would see that as such an advantage. Peter is giving us a clue here that is mind-blowing. And it's this. Anyone who has a love relationship with a God they have never seen is a greater miracle than a Christian who has a love relationship with a Jesus they do see. We look at verse 8 and we say we'd never use that in counseling. And the reason we never use verse 8 in counseling, how can you tell me to have joy when I've never seen him and never will? And what Peter's saying is, that's exactly right. It is a miracle that we can be Christians at all. We don't hear his voice, we've never seen him, and yet we've been transformed. We have a relationship with a Savior we have never seen. It's a miracle. Sitting in this room tonight are Christians who have experienced the greatest miracle of all believers. The ones who got saved without ever seeing him. Verse 8 is the mega miracle of conversion. But in a charismatic environment today, they're drumming into us how disadvantaged we are. I had a charismatic tell me years ago, all you have is the Bible. Oh, I feel such a loser. I have the Bible and I see Jesus every day and I hear his voice. That is so superior to you, John. Oh, you're so right. I am one of the have-nots. I have Jesus, but not his visage. And you have Jesus and you see him every day. Oh, oh, I wished I could have that too. And that's why in verse 8, you may not have written anything on the three lines under Roman numeral 3 because you were scratching your head saying, how is this good? Because we even as non-charismatics think it would be better if we saw him. Come on, yes you do. Who here wouldn't think it's an advantage to have Jesus pop right into your home tonight and start talking to you? You'd have all the questions ready to go, wouldn't you? This is miraculous. Who can have a relationship with anyone on this planet that you've never seen, never talked to, but yet love? Can you name a single relationship, human relationship in your life that you can say, I deeply love so-and-so whom I have not even seen a picture of nor ever even talked to that individual? Who knows by sight and by knowledge your great-great-great-grandfather or mother? 
Anybody here? Great, great, great grandfather or mother. You did have one, right? And I could walk in on any Sunday night and you'd have tears streaming down your eyes and whimpering. And I'd say, oh, 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 what's the matter? Why are you crying? I'm crying, John, because I so love my great, great, great grandfather. <laughs> he means so much to me. Oh, you knew him? No. You saw him? No. You never heard his voice? No. You don't know who he is? No. I think there's a paddy wagon waiting for you. Are you starting to get the flavor, verse 8? We are not at a disadvantage for being lowly Christians that have never seen Jesus. We are miracle personified. I've been preaching a Savior and Lord for 36 years. I've never seen him or heard his voice, had a vision, and never once had a dream with him in it. It came from him and not white castles. Why am I up here? Wearing out this pulpit. Why go through this? What in my makeup would have naturally inclined me to do this for 36 years? This is an outright miracle. And let me tell you, if Jesus had walked in in September 1987 into the membership meeting when I was voted in, and he turned and said to all of you, vote for John, and then turned to me and said, now you've seen me. Here's Jesus. This is what I want you to do for 36 years. That would have really stoked my fire for 36 years. I heard him. I saw him at the membership meeting. And this is what he said. That's going to burn me through endurance to the end of my days. And you know what? That would have been nothing compared to doing it without seeing him. Because that's not faith. That's sight. Sermon title. Proven faith. Not seeing is believing. John 20. Say, I don't know. I still think it would be better if I saw him. That's because you're addicted to that concept. That's why. Peter's the biblical counselor extraordinary who's trying to break us of this. And we get an incredible story from Jesus who really slams this issue home. John 20, verse 19. John 20, 19. So when it was evening on, the day, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, post-crucifixion here now, post-resurrection, and the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, so they're not doing too good, are they? They're terrified that they're next on the hit parade. Jesus came and stood in their midst, so he came through the doors, closed. Peace be with you. Oh, man, if I could have that. Close doors at home tonight. I don't want to go to work tomorrow. I, you know, lock my door, walk into the parsonage. Okay, I'm going to sit on my couch. Just come through the door. Maybe the windows. That's fine. It says, peace be with you. There are Christians that bank their entire hope and fantasy list on that would happen. We look at verse 19 and we say, this is extraordinary. No wonder they set the world on fire. They saw Jesus. 
Verse 20, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the, when they saw the Lord. Do you see the word faith there at all? You don't need faith when you see him. Do you? If Jesus sat down here and you started praying to him, would you say this is faith prayer? No, you'd say it's sight prayer. You're here, I'm going to talk to you, right? Right? They rejoiced when they saw. Was that bad? No, it's not bad. That's good. We're not saying that seeing Jesus in this chapter is bad. Of course it's not. But he's going to make a very sobering point very soon. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is where they received the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That right there technically is where the Old Testament dispensation ends. As far as receiving the Holy Spirit for the apostles. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, this is apostolic. Their sins have been forgiven them. We don't forgive sins. The apostles could. They had that authority. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Ah, but there's a problem. Somebody was off shopping when this occurred, and it was Thomas, verse 24. You're looking at your Bibles right now and saying, where does it say he was off shopping? Oh, I just made that up. Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. Now, he should have said, praise God, I don't even need to see him. I have faith. If you guys saw him, he didn't even believe them. How do you like all these disciples he'd been hanging around for three years and he figures they're lying? They didn't think very much of each other, did they? He just basically slams them and says to them, unless I see his, in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not what? So it seems, going back to verse 20, that disciples only believed because they saw. You could write at the end of verse 20, seeing for them is believing. Seeing is believing. This is the sad state of affairs of charismatic heresy today. And I've talked to a lot of them. I haven't met a charismatic yet who doesn't believe in rolling revelational insights from God that come out after Revelation, the epistle of the New Testament. Every last one of them that I've run into are practicing charismatics hold to this idea of continuous revelatory truth from Jesus directly to us in our minds, through voices, and through visions. Charismatics bank everything on seeing is believing. Thomas is a mess. He doesn't say, no, oh, I don't know, guys, I don't know. No, he says right out in the end of verse 25, I won't believe. Wow, what if Thomas had been around today? <laughs> right? I mean, he's toast. Now, after he said that, Jesus strings him out for eight days in verse 26. He didn't come along and just, boom, pops right in front of him. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came the doors having been shut and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. So that's three times he said it. And he turns to Thomas. This is showing omniscience. 
Because he wasn't there when Thomas was saying all this other stuff, right? So, you know, he didn't, you know, Jesus was not standing there when he said, unless I see his hands imprint, put my finger in the place of the nails. But Jesus is God, and he hears everything, and he sees everything, right? And that means he's fully God even when you can't see him, right? So he's observing everything even when you don't see him, and I don't see him. He's right there just as if he was. Now he condescends to Thomas. These men had to see to believe. In fact, Paul later on to the Corinthians said one of the marks of an apostle is seeing the Lord, the resurrected Savior. And Paul even saw the resurrected Savior. And it was necessary for them. But there's an inherent problem going on here. A problem that has reacquainted itself in the last days of apostate church. The problem is Thomasism. It is that I simply cannot have a fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ simply through the Spirit and the Word. I have to see and I have to hear. And this is what has been drummed into us by heretical charismatic theology for decades. For a century. So he condescends to Thomas. Thomas is a baby at this point. These men are babies at this point spiritually. They're just going to quit and go their own way if Jesus doesn't pop up and show himself to them. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hand. See! And reach your, here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. The only way Thomas can believe is through sight. Seeing at the beginning of verse 27 is believing for him. Now let's grant him that credit. And he walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and saw his miracles and they're in hell today, aren't they? And look at the exclamation of Thomas. Oh, I didn't trust your disciples, Lord. Back at the beginning of verse 25, I think they were lowlifes lying to me. They were pulling a stunt on me. Yes, they were. I'm down and discouraged. And they're telling me that he appeared, right? Okay, sure. But now, Boom. You just see his eyes, his eyes working. Reach with your finger and see my hands. He made him touch that hole right there. And the side where the spirit went. See, you look at this, Thomas. Stick your hand right there. Drops to his knees, no doubt. My Lord and my God. And we stop at verse 28 and we start crying. Can't I just see it too? Just once, Jesus, I want to see you. Let me touch the nail imprint on your hand. I'll serve you to the end of my days then. Yeah, you would. You and I would, but it would be seeing is believing. And Jesus lays down the theology which Peter picks up. I believe, personally, it's just an opinion that 1 Peter 1.8 blows off of verse 29. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? It's a question mark. It's an interrogative. Because you've seen me, you believe? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. That's 
us. Does he say Thomas is blessed? Because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are these. Ah, okay. Back to the crime scene of the upper room in 1 Peter 1.8. Where we're befuddled and perplexed. I'm discouraged from my suffering. And I'm supposed to have joy. And now Peter's telling me, you're never going to see him. Oh. Oh, oh, what Peter's saying is, you are a miraculous follower of Jesus Christ and you are incredibly blessed because you never saw him, yet you love him. And you don't even see him now, but you believe. That is a miracle. Charismatics have short-changed their supposed Savior. They need so much more than the Bible says that they are to have. They need the book to continue after the book of Revelation. They need visions and miracles. And they need more than the indwelling Holy Spirit, doctrine of subsequence. They need the evidential, miraculous tongues, second blessing of the Spirit. Because everything wrapped up in the Bible and the didactic teaching Miraculous faith in Jesus Christ who's unseen is absolutely deficient for me. And like whipped little dogs, we've trailed behind the leash of charismatics for decades. I wished I had that too. Watson, dumb Watson's in the room and he stops blubbering. <laughs> Oh, Sherlock, I, oh, I see what you're saying. We love him in this room of suffering and we've never seen him. What a miracle that is. Yeah. By Jove Watson, you've got it. So on your three lines, did you write that down? On the Roman numeral three was, did you pass that test that the encouragement of her saint is not a negativity at all? The encouragement is... You never have seen or heard him, and yet you're a believer. This is the most positive thing you could ever think on. A God who reached out and opened my mind to save me from hell did it powerfully in this wicked mind without ever showing me him or hearing his voice. He completely revolutionized my life, never seeing him, never touching him. How could he not see me through every suffering situation in this life if he could make me a believer sight unseen? Why do I doubt him on all the other trials of life? He's watching me and guiding me just as he was watching Thomas spout off his foolishness. Unless I see and touch, I will not believe. This is why so many professed believers dump the Bible. They have a deficiency syndrome. The Bible is inherently deficient. It's just not enough. And that's why in 2 Peter, he slams this again in 2 Peter chapter 1, as we've seen many times. Go over there. 
And he talks about seeing. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he talks about seeing. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus and of Jesus our Lord. In the knowledge of God. He's striking the match on this again. It's the knowledge of God in the scriptures that are the miracle that we have grace and peace through them. It's in the sphere of the knowledge of God. Now look at he mentions seeing. Verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Seeing what? His power manifested in our lives by a vision of him? No, through the precious and magnificent promises of the word of God. We are the ones, the non-charismatics, who have the advantage. We are the ones that are living the true faith in the true Jesus Christ, whom we will never see until we're in heaven. And he is here, and he's living within us, and we believe it never having heard his voice. Because we have the miracle of the word of God. Verse 4. By these he has granted us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you partake and fellowship with the divine nature. Not through visions, not through dreams and sightings. It's by them, in verse 4, you fellowship and see Jesus Christ through the word of God. Why would we not want to see him more by driving ourselves into the word? But it's so boring. And I've got other things to do. And I think I'll shop at Walmart rather than read my Bible. Because we really don't see the power that's emanating off the pages of the scriptures. This is where we found conversion. And this is where we grow in Christ. Never seeing him. And in verse 4, the word partaker is the form of the word koinonia. We fellowship relationally with the very divine nature of God who resides within us through the Holy Spirit. And the promises and the word and the Holy Spirit by themselves, completely silent, they destroy the corruption of lust. Charismatics don't have this. And because they don't have this, and they constantly diss on the word of God. And you know how I, they diss on the word of God? I've never met a deeply knowledgeable charismatic believer in my entire life. Not one. Not one. They can't be bothered. Well, they have their thoughts about the word and they claim to uh, follow it. I was in my truck the other day and uh, I had my windows down. It was 50, gets above 50 degrees. I start sweating, fat boy that I am. So I had my windows down and I was at a long light at Stony Island on 95th Street and there was a car behind me and there were Christians, so to speak, in there because I could hear the Christian music booming. And uh, the girl who was driving, I'm looking in my rearview mirror, got about two minutes, I'm studying them. The woman who was driving was sitting there while the music was blaring was like this. Obviously, you don't, I said, you know, obviously she doesn't like the music. But the party going on next to her was unbelievable. The woman next to her, while the music is playing, oh, okay, I'm getting carried away. Just isn't enough the word of God, is it? This never will be enough. We need a little push from music. When music doesn't make you grow, according to Ephesians 5, it is a byproduct of already growing in the word. Look at that verse 4. 
He's given us his precious and magnificent promises. And by them alone, we partake of the divine nature. We fellowship with the divine nature. And we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. It is the miracle of the word that the Spirit of God uses. Not And what charismatic theology has done is it's turned emotional feelings are synonymous with holiness. And you can see in the black church in any city in America that there's no transformational theology going on at all. Wiped out. This isn't racism. This is the cultural identity of Christianity is having an experience of church driven by music and, and heresy driving us to say, see how much I love you while you turn left on the next street and commit your abominations. Because while I'm feeling good by jiving to the music, I'm godly. So do you get it? Is that what you wrote on the three lines? So, text note number three in conclusion. Sherlock Holmes finishes us off and shows us how destitute we are. Notice the positive and negative aspects of this relationship with Christ. Not having seen, not seeing, negative. You love and believe in him, positive. You see that in verse, going back to 1 Peter 1, 8? Not having seen, negative, not seeing, that's negative. You love him, positive. You believe in him, positive. You want to know what the most positive statements in that verse are? The ones that are the most negative. The most positive statements are not seeing him, not seeing now. That's the positive. How on earth did I ever get saved not seeing him? What a miracle. It's the conundrum of verse 8. Not seeing is incredibly positively negative. I love him not seeing him. Not seeing him is negatively so positive. Did you get it? So your question at the top of your note sheet is, do you love Jesus? Not if you think, little deficient in the Christian life. I just need to have you give me a little more music, a little more uplifting feeling. I need a little more visions. I need to have a dream tonight. I need you to talk to me. And you do not love Jesus Christ. Because the godly ones are the ones that realize God has performed the greatest miracle in a human that can never be performed. Giving us a love and faith for him that is impossible in these hell-bound, wretched, lust-filled minds of ours. Piercing the darkness and revolutioning revolutionizing our minds through the written word of God without ever opening his mouth. What power! What a miracle. May we never again, if we have done this, see ourselves as the holy deficient ones, the non-charismatic fundamentalists who only have the word 
And one time only the Spirit comes in and never see the Jesus that I see. Years ago, I was talking to a charismatic at Moody when I was a student there. He didn't understand. His name was Gary. He didn't understand. I sat with him in chapel all the time. He didn't understand why I would not be charismatic. And he was charismatic at Moody, and I said, well, I just think the Bible's sufficient. And he just went like this. And I sat there, and I thought, yeah, he's right. Maybe this isn't enough. I'm sure glad I didn't side with Gary. And I sided with his precious and magnificent promises. The Word of God is enough for me. Father, this is why I preach for 36 years, never seeing or hearing you, because I'm a wretched that should be in hell, and you did some miracle on me that is astounding. You turned me right around without ever talking to me or showing yourself, Lord, and you opened up to me a hunger for the word of God that is nothing short of a supernatural miracle. All I can say to you is thank you that I, as a non-charismatic fundamentalist, have received the greatest miracle anyone can ever have to be converted and to grow in love without ever seeing or hearing you. This is a revolutionary thought that cannot be climbed. This is a summit of spirituality that cannot be ascended to the crown of the mountain in one sermon, dear Lord. We have to really climb this one for a while. So we're going to dive into these statements even more closely as Sherlock Holmes would request of us, so to speak, at the crime scene. And we need to really dig into the corners of this room and analyze every little particle on the carpet and on the walls and in the fireplace. And we need to really see and taste the miracle of conversion without seeing. Truly, Lord, biblical Christianity is not seeing and believing. Praise your holy name. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.